12. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and I'm going to read through uh, verse 7, which doesn't even finish a sentence, but it's where we're going to finish today. So uh, verse tw- uh, chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all dot, 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 to be continued. Uh, Let's pray once more for God's blessing on our understanding of these things. Jesus, we don't want to talk about you like you're not present with us. Um, We don't want to talk about your Holy Spirit as if we're looking at him through a glass darkly, uh, through a window. You're here with us. You've, You've given us your presence. You have not left us orphans. And we pray for your anointing and blessing on our understanding of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We need help to understand these things. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And we say, Amen, brother. Uh, we, don't, we don't want to be ignorant about these things. Now, we're beginning a section of Scripture here that extends from chapter 12, verse 1, uh, really through the end of ch- to the end of chapter 14. Uh, The subject matter is introduced to us in verse 1. It's spiritual things. Now, the word gifts there, it says now concerning spiritual gifts. That might be in italics in your New King James Bible. The word gifts isn't there. It's not in the Greek. It makes sense in the context. context, And the word does show up later in verse 4. But in verse 1, Paul just says concerning spirituals. (laughs) You might say concerning spiritual stuff, spiritual things. So the greater topic then that we're introducing is not just the things we call spiritual gifts, which will be, uh, you know, talked about in, from verse 4 on through verse 11, and then on through in chapter 14 and everything. That's not the, the bigger topic we're talking about. Spiritual gifts are introduced, they're, they're mentioned, but the topic here is life in the spirit as it is opposed to life in the flesh. That's the bigger topic here. We don't go into this to just be like, oh, yes, spiritual gifts. Let's find out which one mine is. Okay, the the bigger topic, the umbrella over chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, is walking in the Spirit. And it's important to see the spiritual gifts, which we'll talk more about specifically next week, in this greater spiritual context. It is a mistake to think of spiritual gifts like tools that the Corinthians had but didn't really know how to use, and then Paul just gives this chapter as sort of a user's manual to clear everything up, the problem was not just a lack of instruction with their gifts. The problem was that in Corinth, they were carnal Christians. I mean, that's the problem we've seen since chapter one. They were being driven by their flesh rather than the spirit. This expressed itself in the divisions that Paul addressed in earlier chapters, and will come up again in this one. It was evident in the way they failed to address sin in their congregation. It expressed itself in how they ate together, selfishly, uh, and how they worshiped together and worked together, or really how they couldn't work together and were unwilling to work together. The war against flesh and spirit, that's the Corinthian problem. And of course, they're not alone in this. Now, the Bible 
In the Bible, we see other examples of Paul addressing the issues of flesh versus spirit. Um, most notably, probably in Galatians, Corinthians, First Corinthians and the book of Galatians are definitely Paul's spiciest letters. Like there, you can tell he's, he's this close to losing his temper, right? Um, they're corrective. And the Galatians are rebuked for some bad doctrine. They were t- returning to legalism. Uh, the Corinthians were moving the other way towards an attitude of, I can do whatever I want and you can't tell me otherwise. Now, in both cases, their problem was centered around the spiritual life. And though it manifested itself in kind of opposite behaviors, the Galatian, in Galatians, you read that famous passage about the works of the flesh being opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. And here we see the same principle played out in Corinthians where their selfish behaviors were opposed to a life in the Spirit. The contrast, that contrast is made and the, the nature of the warfare is spelled out in black and white. And in Corinthians, Paul writes in a very similar way as he does to the Galatians, just with, in a less quotable fashion using more words. Uh, but the problem and the solution are the same. The problem is the people's ignorance, practical ignorance, hands-on ignorance in the realm of the Spirit. They don't know how to live in the Spirit. They don't know how to walk in the Spirit. And what's at stake here? And and the importance of living a life according to the Spirit. And so Paul says, concerning spiritual, fill in the blank, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Concerning spiritual things, I don't want you to be ignorant. And, And we don't want to be ignorant either. And now I just said their issue wasn't merely a lack of instruction, right? It's not like, here's how you use the gifts, just, you know, plug it into your liturgy and it all makes sense. Um, But Paul does need to instruct the ignorant, not in a textbook kind of way. The thing is, the learning they needed was not classroom book learning. It was hands-on stuff that required them to live as Christ lived, sacrificing themselves, their preferences, their things for the good of other people. You don't get to do that in a classroom. You have to actually live real life. And that's what they were ignorant in, living with other people, serving in their church, being able to relate to one another as the body of Christ. As we follow Paul through his arguments in this chapter and the next two, we'll see that he doesn't expect them just to read his argument, read the letter, and then have the light bulb go on. The solution for the Corinthians was not having a list of spiritual gifts and then just pass them out and see how they work, or even the understanding of how they function. That's not the point. The center of this entire discussion, this spiritual discussion, is love. Chapter 13 is all about it. Chapter 14 is about prophecy and speaking in tongues. Chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts and working together. But at the center, you have chapter 13, which is about love. The Corinthians were ignorant, and Paul is going to teach them, but the pathway to true knowledge, spiritual knowledge, was not only instruction, it was walking in love. It was the encouragement to go and walk in love. And he'll say in chapter 13, of course, even if I had all knowledge, but have not love, I'm nothing. Think with me about the Galatians again. The Galatians were ignorant in things of the Spirit as well. And Paul's instruction to them is not just a matter of verses to memorize. He says, walk in the Spirit so that you may not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We learn how to walk by walking and falling down and getting up again and walking some more. And in Galatians, as well as Corinthians, the Spirit-filled life is summed up in love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The Corinthians needed help serving each other and using their gifts and walking in the Spirit, but they really needed to grow in this area by loving each other. 
the Corinthians did have some of their facts wrong. They needed educating. They didn't really know how things like prophecy worked and where the place is for speaking in tongues. They needed practical instruction on those things, sure. But after that, what they needed to overcome, you know, was their ignorance in the, in the spiritual realm. And they overcome that ignorance by walking in the spirit. They were ignorant in how to serve one another. Their education, therefore, includes serving one another in love. They were a self-satisfied group. We've seen that with Corinth, right? They didn't think other people, including Paul, had a whole lot to offer them. They kind of sound like the Laodicean church even. I'm rich. I have need of nothing. That's Corinth. And so the correction to this ignorance includes not just serving others, but also relying on others who have different giftings than they do. We'll see that in chapter 12. When we want to talk about spiritual gifts, this is the chapter we go to. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12, because that's where the lists are, and we like lists. But you'll notice when you read all of this, the conversation isn't centered around how to prophesy or how much time to words of wisdom and words of knowledge should be given to a normal Sunday service. That Paul never talks about those kinds of things. He's not interested in those details. The chapter is about how to serve other people unselfishly with the power of God himself. This is the kind of thing that we'll be talking about for the next three chapters, several weeks. But right here at the beginning, you have to know this. God will call you to love and serve other people. And he will empower you with his spirit to love and serve other people. But the Corinthians' brand of selfishness, which is being corrected here, doesn't stop at being unwilling to serve others. It also manifests itself in its unwillingness to be served by others. That's the correction Paul brings up in verse 21 later in the chapter when he says, you know, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So that's going on in Corinth. Not just an unwilling to serve other people, but to say that person has nothing to offer me. So I believe you can expect two things to happen in our church, in your lives, as we uh, go through these next few chapters. Yes, he will call you to serve. But what might be even more difficult for some of you, he might call you to rely on someone else who needs to serve you. Washing feet is difficult. Having your feet washed can be unthinkable. Just ask Peter. The other thing I believe you can expect to be worked out in the next few chapters, you'll be called to serve, you will be served. But once again, the discussion on spiritual gifts and each one's place in the body is centered around love, not skill or talent, or even gifting. I'm expecting the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God into our hearts, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 5. I expect the Holy Spirit to give you a greater love for the people in your church. I believe that's what the next three chapters have for us. Now, we, we won't get into the individual gifts of the Spirit in this passage until next week, okay? The, you see that starting in, you know, the rest of the sentence that I cut off there. And in verse 8, he starts listing all these gifts. And we'll go through those one at a time and some extras uh, from other passages. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you just now, you have to look at the gifts with a wider lens than just is this one mine? Is that one mine? Do I get this one? That may be the Corinthian brand of selfishness rearing its ugly head. We look at the manifestations of the Spirit of God and see the ways God intends to reveal himself to his church for his glory. 
Some of these ways may be through you. Others may be to you through others. And the most important thing to realize, it's not which gift is yours. It's to realize the Holy Spirit is ours. The excitement that you can get from this passage, it's not that you get a new shiny spiritual toy. It's that you get to see God bless his people, your family, the ones you love. And the exciting part is not the gift in its own right. It is the work of God. The best part of this whole thing is not that we receive power. It's that we receive God, and he is mighty in power. Now, perhaps that's where we should start. We'll probably start with God, right? Don't you think? That's actually where Paul begins the discussion as well. We always want to be more focused on the giver than the gift. So let's realize right now that we're talking about God. When he says the gifts of the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit, he is talking about the Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, and holy. And the Holy Spirit, of course, shares in every other attribute that you know of God the Father or God the Son. He is God, and he, the Holy Spirit of God, is in you. This is not true for unbelievers. They might say they're very spiritual. We'll talk about that later. doesn't mean what you think it means. For every Christian, though, this is the fact. The Holy Spirit of God, who hovered over the waters at creation and raised Christ from the dead, is in you. And even before you were saved, the Holy Spirit was with you. Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room in John 14, the Holy Spirit who is with you will be in you. He promises that prior to the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. After the resurrection in that same upper room, or maybe another one, but it was an upper room, he says, receive the Spirit and breathes, breathes on them. At that point, the Spirit was in them. After this, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to these same disciples who he breathed on, and said, receive the Spirit. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We read about the Holy Spirit with them prior to the crucifixion and resurrection. We see the Holy Spirit come into them after the resurrection, and then on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples to make them witnesses of Jesus. That's the purpose of the Spirit coming upon a believer to make them better witnesses of Jesus. Now, throughout the book of Acts, you, you see Peter and the other apostles being filled with the Holy Spirit. And right before he preaches a, a sermon or does something significant, it says, and then Peter being filled with the Spirit. And it's not a one-time thing. It's something you read several times throughout the book. It's not a two-time thing. It's this recurring event for the apostles. The Spirit comes upon them. It rushes on them. They are filled with the Spirit. It's as if before the sermon, Peter would inhale, breathing in the Spirit of God before exhaling a sermon. And, and even when Peter isn't preaching, of course, he's still got the Holy Spirit, right? When you're sleeping, you have the Holy Spirit. It's not like he only shows up when he wants you to do something impressive and super Christian, or you've been behaving yourself extra good. But there is a way in which that ever-present Spirit of God who has taken up his permanent residence in you, there is another way in which he shows up. He, he shows himself in the believer's life for the glory of Jesus Christ in order to build up the body and, and be God. To enable us to do the works of ministry and be witnesses of Jesus, he will show up. Paul calls, Paul calls the gifts in this passage manifestations of the Spirit. When something manifests, that means it becomes visible. 
The gifts are ways the Spirit who is in you shows up and brings glory to God and health to his church. So in verse 1, Paul says he doesn't want Christians to be ignorant of the matters of the Spirit, which is a theological matter. It's a matter about God. And then in verse 2, he describes why they're ignorant and offers the most true and valuable standard for measuring anything that is spiritual, so-called. So verses 2 and 3, let's read those. He says, You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So that the Corinthians, they understood that the Holy Spirit brought power. You'll see that in these next few chapters. They're very aware that there is, is power to be had and to be seen. They didn't understand the Holy Spirit's purpose. The Spirit does what he does in order to exalt Christ. Paul says, we can all agree that your past is a checkered one. <laughs> you were Gentiles carried away by dumb, dumb idols. You were, you know, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They were carried away however they were led. And this seems to be kind of the way they were operating in the church. And, you know, with spiritual gifts and other things. They were just, they'd see something that seemed kind of spiritual, and they were in, 100%. And the next seemingly spiritual sounding thing, there with that, he's like, yeah, okay, that's the way you used to live. You just believed everything anyone handed to you. That's the way you used to live. When you were unspiritual, when you were unspiritual, you were undiscerning. Jesus promised that the Spirit would lead his disciples into all truth. This is the opposite of being led astray in every direction. So Paul, right out the gate, he gives a sort of rule, a standard by which to measure the so-called spiritual activities going on in the church. There's probably a lot of people saying they were prophets. Uh, a lot of people saying, the Holy Spirit wanted me to say this. And everyone just swallowed whatever was said. Hook, line, and sinker. The Corinthians were gullible. And Paul says, okay, this everything goes attitude is something that you were primed for in your past life as Gentile pagans. Everything was subjective. Nothing was objective. And you just believed everything. Um, but you have to know that this is the standard for spiritual activity. All spiritual activity can and must be judged by how it exalts Christ. There are other standards, of course, and other practical guidelines that Paul will get into over the next three chapters. The main one is in chapter 13. But this is the ground floor. This is the foundational truth against which all spiritual activity must be measured. This is plumb and level. Jesus is Lord. It is both the declaration of the Lordship of Christ and the submission to the Lordship of Christ that we have to return to again and again when we try and sort out the proper uses of spiritual gifts. Now, Paul places this border in an interesting place, with the guardrail being no one speaking by the Holy Spirit calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty broad path, honestly. But this is not saying, well, as long as you say Jesus is Lord at the end of your prophecy, you're good. You know, it's like, in Jesus' name, amen. And then just cleans up the whole heretical prayer that led up to it. It's like, that's not how that's supposed to work. What he's saying by setting out this preliminary standard is showing the Corinthians who were slipping back to becoming part of the world and looking like the world and behaving like the world. He says, no, no, true spirituality is not out there. That's not where the spirit is. And at the same time, he's telling this dividing, hostile, bickering Corinthian church that the Christians they don't like, who are still, you know, declaring Jesus is Lord, those are still family. 
Those are still spirit-filled Christians, even if you can't stand them. Some Corinthians were so open-minded, everything was falling out, right? They just wanted to be like the world, and it was all just whatever goes. And then there's people, you know, that they were living like the world and even worse. But the, the world, Paul reminds them, that half of Corinth, he says, that's the world out there. They, they account Jesus as accursed. Those worldly philosophies, they don't confess Jesus as God. That should be your standard. You don't need what they're offering, and you should not resemble them. The Spirit of God is where Jesus is Lord. The Corinthians certainly had people like we find today who are pluralist, who believe that there are many paths that would speak of being spiritual. And Christians are caught up in this mess and believe that their friend who doesn't believe in Jesus and doesn't have Jesus as their Lord is still somehow very spiritual, technically true, pointless to say. <laughs> Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of spiritual things. That's not the Holy Spirit. If they're saying Jesus was accursed, if they do not believe that he is ever blessed, God of very God, that, that's not the Holy Spirit in them. And where are those who are open to worldly spiritual counterfeits, there are also those on the other side that Paul is addressing as well that really like to draw the lines about who's in and who's out and generally draw them too close to home. Um, eventually, you start drawing the circle smaller and smaller, and you're the only one in it. Um, perfect church, just you. Uh, and and he, he's addressing the other the people in the Corinthian church that are going to look at those other people that have other giftings and say they're not, I don't even think they're really Christians. I mean, they don't seem to be filled with the Holy Spirit because they're not nearly as loud as me, you know? And, and you see how this is kind of the opposite of the other position, but they're both addressed in a, a good spiritual theology of what the Holy Spirit does in the church. There have been divisions within the church since its beginning, and the apostles have been trying to unite the church at its very beginning. It is possible to have all your theological convictions intact and still see that the Spirit of God is working in churches that do not share those same convictions. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Love believes all things or believes the best in all circumstances. Those weird Christians that aren't like you, the ones that still preach Christ, believe in the Trinity and love each other, but everything about, uh, else about them is just so different from what you consider to be normal. Your default position should be that they are Christians who are not like you, not necessarily false converts that are wrong and need to be shunned or converted. Now, these are generaliz generalizations. But in general, Paul is dividing the church from the world and uniting the church as the church. We want division from evil. We want unity in the church. That's the big idea. Or rather, Paul is showing that the Holy Spirit is in the church in ways that he is not in the world. Let's go be with him. <laughs> and the Spirit of God is set on uniting the members of the church in ways that those members haven't even thought of. And one of the ways the Spirit of God does both of these things, takes us from the world and unites us to each other as the body of Christ, is through these gifts that Paul is going to be talking about here in chapter 14. Serving one another unites us to one another. Serving one another and being served by one another drives the point home that we are not of this world and that the help we need isn't from out there. Now Paul mentions gifts, ministries, activities, and manifestation of the Spirit. And all of these things are bunched up in the same category. In fact, they're, it seems like they're almost synonymous. And verse 4 through 6 lists these things, and it sounds a bit like poetry. Okay, Paul is repeating similar ideas with a sl slightly different words to give emphasis and to make it memorable. In verse 4, it says, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
There are differences in, of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. This should remind you of the cadence of you know, some of the Psalms or the, the poetic portions of the prophets. Now, Paul's main point here is that there is variety, and in this variety, there is unity. We can and should be different from one another in our gifts, in the ministries we're involved in, in the activities that God calls us to do. In verse 7, when Paul calls these things manifestations of the Spirit, that's when, when God shows up. God will show up in your life and through your life in ways that he will not reveal himself in and through my life. There'll be similarities, of course, but there is variety. There's variety by design, and all the variety is from the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. This is a beautiful declaration of the Trinity here. The Spirit of God, that's who we're talking about. Generally speaking, when the disciples say Lord, they're talking about Jesus. They called him Lord. Sometimes they call him God. Thomas does. But in general, when they say God, they mean God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now read verses 4 through 6 again. Look for the Trinity. There are diversities of gifts with the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries with the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. The Corinthians were dividing the church of God based on function. And here Paul is saying, God is united and has different functions. Be like him. Now, earlier in the book, we saw that they were divided based on personalities, right? I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Our God is three persons and one God. Now, Paul, Peter, and Apollos, they were all friends, and they knew they did different ministry differently. And they were different for a reason. They had different focuses, different styles, but they were united in purpose and united in reality by being members of the one body of Christ. The Corinthians took differences and said, well, there can only be one. There can't be this much diversity here. No, there can only be one. And they started chopping up the church into sections. And, and here's the same thing. There's, there's different gifts, and that's okay. Still one church. There couldn't, they couldn't handle godly unity, and they couldn't handle godly diversity. So Paul is saying, your diversity is not opposed to your unity. Your diversity proves your unity that is based on the triune God. The example he uses of different parts of the same body makes sense. It's one body, different parts. And right here he gives the deepest, most profound example of diversity within unity that a human mind can possibly reach for. It's the Trinity. One God, three persons. We are created in his image, and the church is meant to resemble him in his unity and in his diversity. Paul places the spiritual gifts under the authority of each person of the Trinity. He says, yeah, it's, it's a gift of the Spirit, but it's the ministry of Jesus. And those two are never going to be opposed to each other. It's the work of God, but that's done through the gifting of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it one way without the other. You can't do the work of God without the Spirit doing that work through you. And he calls them gifts, ministries, activities, manifestation of the Spirit, but they're the same thing. These are virtually interchangeable labels in this passage, and that's important because we have to see that the gifts of the Spirit cannot be seen as things that are separated from the ministry and activity of Jesus. It's not like you do ministry and do ministry and, you know, all, all your, you know, uh, church functions or just you trying to reach people, and then you have gifts of the Spirit like over there for a Sunday night special prayer service. Like that makes no sense at all. It's the ministry of Jesus is done 
through the gifting of the Holy Spirit. The work of God is the ministry of Jesus, which is done through the empowering of the Spirit of God. And all this work is the work of God, the work of Jesus, the work of the Spirit. We get weird when we separate gifts of the Spirit from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what we're doing is essentially trying to divide the Trinity, and you can't. It's a sad reality that there are churches that get really, really into the gifts of the Spirit and spiritual experiences, and very often eventually slide into uh, a slightly off-kilter place where the actual gospel is concerned. It's telling that the discussion on the misuse and abuse of spiritual gifts in Corinthians is sandwiched between a discussion on communion, which is the proclamation of the death of Christ, and a discussion on the resurrection in chapter 15, which we preach every Easter. Paul places the gifts in the context of the gospel with love at its center, and that's where they belong. Because when it's all about spiritual experience or power or gifting, a wow factor that is separate from the ministry of Jesus, then we need to consider whether or not there's a need to return to the actual work of Jesus. Seek and save that which is lost. Feed the hungry. Care for orphans and widows. Feed the sheep. And of course, preach the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, of course, there are churches that believe the only work of the Spirit is a pastor preaching on Sunday mornings. That's another problem. Almost all of these gifts or manifestations of the Spirit are things that happen outside the context of a weekly meeting. We have to see that Jesus didn't do all his work in church. We'll get into more of that, how that works in the coming weeks. But spiritual gifts, they're not separated from the ministries of the Lord. And all of these gifts and ministries are part of the diverse activities of God who works all in all. It's the kingdom of God, one kingdom that we are bringing about. The way God brings about his kingdom is by showing up himself through his people, by ministering through his people, by inviting his people by his spirit to be part of his work, God builds his kingdom. Now in verse 7, verse 7 is where we get the, that phrase I keep bringing up, the manifestation of the spirit. The manifestation of the spirit is given to each for the profit of all. Many of us are more comfortable with words like ministry and activity and less comfortable with something like manifestation of the Spirit. Um, but just as we can go overboard by considering all the works of God as only impressive, charismatic, woo-woo, Holy Spirit power, and maybe forget that the Spirit's work is often done in quiet places, that feeding orphans really doesn't require shouting in tongues, but it does require the Holy Spirit. Okay, we can get that, that's stuff that we got to sort out. But we can also drift over to the other side and cling to the formal definition of ministry and equate the work of the Spirit with a well-thought-out organization with well-qualified volunteers who are doing their assigned task just the way the spreadsheet says they should. The work of the Spirit isn't all fire and volume, but the Spirit, a spiritual gift, the work of the Spirit, is also nothing less than an appearance or display of God himself through the act of service done by one of his children. They're, they are absolutely supernatural. The gifts of the Spirit are supernatural. These, the ministry of Jesus is supernatural. There is nothing natural about it. By defining a gift as a manifestation of the Spirit and having that in our vocabulary when we talk about giftings and ministries, we are shown that the gift is, is divine in its nature. It is his real presence breaking into our activities, making them his activity. When you are operating with a spiritual gift, the gift that is received is the Holy Spirit. The spiritual gift is not one of the tools that you pull out of your Swiss Army knife that gets, you know, the user gets to use as he sees fit. The gift of the Spirit is a manifestation of the living God. It's when God appears to his people 
through his people to serve. The Spirit of God, who, like the wind, John chapter 3, anyone? Moves where he wishes. Now, one more time, the gift is God. It is his work. It is his hand at work, seen in the ministry of his people. It's important that we talk about these things in these terms. Because one all-too-common tendency when we talk about spiritual gifts and ministries is to confuse spiritual gifts with natural talents. Now, make no mistake, your talents, if you happen to have any, are from God as well. Okay? It's not wrong to speak of your natural abilities and your skills that you have developed as gifts But do not confuse them with what Paul is talking about here. Do not confuse them with gifts of the Spirit. I think it's it's a good way to think about gifts by comparing them to one, one of the gifts that Paul mentions in verse 10, miracles. He says that's a spiritual gift, miracles. Who here took miracle lessons as a kid when other kids were doing piano lessons? Okay? No, you went to a different church than I did. Uh, But... Uh, You know, we we say like, oh, that person is really gifted. And more often than not, we're talking about them putting a lot of time and money into a skill. That's completely different than the things Paul talks about in this list. Okay? Miracles. That's a spiritual gift. Who here has a natural talent for miracles? No? Well, maybe you should practice more. No, please don't. That's not the way any of this works. Which means, which means, if, if the spiritual gifts are supernatural in nature and not your natural talents, not dependent on your natural talents or preferences, then here's the unpopular opinion of the day. It may not be the last one. Uh, A test that asks you questions about your preferences, strengths, weaknesses, and things like that will not be able to determine how the Holy Spirit of God is willing to move in your life. How in the world could it? I guarantee that the 80-year-old shepherd with the stutter would not have taken an online spiritual gift test and then determined his gifts were leadership, prophecy, and miracles. Also, if you're looking for a career change, maybe overthrowing a political superpower and then going on a 40-year camping trip would be in your... Like, that's not how the Spirit of God ever works. The fisherman who calls Jesus Satan and then denies Christ three times would not have been able to take a quiz to determine that he had the spiritual gifts necessary to enable him to lead the church on Pentecost, heal a lame man, or raise the dead. That's not how any of this works. Now, God will use your natural talents sometimes, but just as often, he will crucify your natural talents and then give you the same power that raised Christ from the dead and have you use that instead. Which do you think works better? When we talk about Paul's body metaphor, we're all members of one body, we're very quick to go straight to the question, where am I, right? Who am I? It's like looking at the group photo. You know, you find your face to make sure you look good, which never matters because no one's looking at you. They're looking at themselves to find out if they look good in the group photo, right? There. But this chapter is like that. We, go, we come to this and we go through the list and then feel a little dejected if we don't find ourselves in it. I don't think any of these are mine. Maybe I'll turn the page and see if I get another one. Like, or, uh, That's not how this works. This is not the group photo that you find yourself in. This chapter wasn't meant as a diagnostic test for you to find out your gifts. The goal is not to find you in the passage. The goal is to find the Holy Spirit working among his people. The point is not your gift. The point is God who is willing to meet you here through other people. 
We want to see God working in his church. The way God works in his church is through his church and through some of these gifts. So we, we seek him first and we seek his kingdom first. And then we can be confident that all these things will be added unto you, including possibly a greater awareness of your part in it. But the goal is not to see yourself more clearly. It is to see the Holy Spirit do his work through his people. And what's beautiful and reassuring about this passage and others like it that center on the life of the Spirit is that what you find is is the further you go with the Spirit of God, the less you're really going to care about your place in the body. You'll think of yourself a whole lot less, and you'll think about him and what he's doing a whole lot more. Now, another thing that verse 7 tells us about these gifts by way of introduction for next week's sermon is the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. To each for all. This is another important framework uh, that we use to think about spiritual gifts. This describes the function of the gifts as well as their distribution. What are they for? They're to bless everybody. That's what they're for. They're for all. They're for others. Who gets the gifts? Each one. You qualify. The church is not made up of a few gifted people and a bunch of spectators. Paul is going to make it clear that just because your gifts aren't the same as someone else, that doesn't mean the Spirit does not intend to manifest himself in your life for the benefit of the church. By saying that these are given to each one, Paul is inviting each one to consider themselves a minister in the church of God. He is preventing, at the same time, the arrogant, the proud, from looking at others who don't minister like they do as somehow ungifted or less spiritual second-class Christians. Each one has a role to play a gift to give, but these gifts or manifestations are not for their own benefit. You don't have a gift to make your life better. You have a gift for other people. The gifts are for all. They are for others. Gifts are for giving away. And you think, I thought gifts were for getting. That's how I remember. Partly true. The Christian ethic is whether it's with spiritual gifts or the second coat you have in the closet, is what you have is for you to give away. Think of Peter speaking to the lame man. What I have, I give unto you. That's how gifts work. Here's a good rule of thumb. It's not a gift if you're not giving it away. The gifts are called ministries. It's not a ministry unless someone is being ministered to. They're called activities. It's not an activity if it's just you thinking about your good ideas. It's probably not even an activity if it's you talking about your good ideas. Your gift, your ministry, your activity, the way the Spirit of God wishes to manifest himself in his church through your life is his way of loving others well through you. It is the Spirit's way of lovingly serving others to the glory of Christ. That's where we're going to leave things today. Next week, we're going to go through the list of spiritual gifts Paul gives here. Um, But it won't be for us to hand out assignments for your role in church. We're not looking at it to find ourselves in the group picture. We are here to watch God work, to see how he works, and to accept an invitation to join him in his work to be about our Father's business. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you all the glory and praise and honor. We pray that with whatever ministries, whatever acts of service, with whatever um, blessings we are able to bless one another with, the name of Jesus would be exalted. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would manifest yourself in our presence, 
We pray that the way these people that are gathered here today love each other would be, it would be evident that it's supernatural. That the way we serve each other would be sourced from your power and nowhere else. I thank you for the the talented and skilled people you have at this church, but I pray that each one of us would be willing to lay down any of our gifts, our power, our wisdom, to where we can boast only in Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. We thank you for what you're doing in our church, what you plan to do. We pray, Holy Spirit, pour out the love of God into our hearts for your glory. Amen. 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 Please stand. After you're sent, there is uh, always prayer up front for anyone uh, wanting prayer for any specific thing. Uh, The rest of you, get out of the way and let them pray. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 